at the start of the week and plenty on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. In the bedroom? Yeah, absolutely. In, in, yeah. Would they go into a bed? <laughs> I didn't ask them, but they're on the floor, that's for sure, you know, so they can crawl anywhere they've got that many legs. I'm not dying in this room tonight. This is not where I'm going to die. I am going to get out. I have too much to live for. I've got nine grandchildren. I've got four daughters. I am getting out of here. I am living. I'm not dying in this room. Just, just, just so people are clear, a USB power bank, it's a, it's a rechargeable battery. So even in, in the event that the power goes down, you can charge your device using this thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they're those kind of like the little sticks that you see everywhere. It's a good Do you idea know what? To keep they're all, those things are all dead in a drawer somewhere. And to start, heebie-jeebies time on the live line with Katie Hannon. Millipedes, woodlice, gnats, baby mice, we're all in for a cold snap, so that means unwanted house guests. Now, take a listen to this. There are tears streaming down my face as I write this email and I'm at the end of my tether trying to resolve this recurring problem I have at my home in the west of Galway. Over the past three to four years, there has been an invasion of millipedes coming into my home and I'm unable to stop it happening no matter what I do. And believe me, I have tried everything possible. I have PVC windows and doors, but yet they seem to have a way of hiding in the frame despite the windows and doors being locked and there are no holes that they can come through. And yet there they are inside the house, along my floors and my walls. I don't know what I can do at this stage, but I am at the end of the road trying to get there. I am now a prisoner in my own home. As a result, I can't open windows or doors in fear they come in. It's awful and really getting to me. I really need help solving this, please. Lisa, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, that's not you, Lisa. That's a, a listener who is clearly at the end of their tether with uh, with uh, well, millipedes. And you, you've I've, been there. I've been there. So I'm also in the West of Ireland, and I can tell her that there is a fairly easy solution to this. It's called diatomaceous earth. And I've, I've texted the details on to you. You can make them available to her. Um, it can be easily bought on Amazon. It, uh, I would recommend using the human grade of it. It's also got uses in agriculture. Okay, um, okay. Lisa, it, it, can I sure. stop you a second and just t- 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 just let, because people may not be, you know, familiar with millipedes in particular or, you know, the idea of an in- infestation. Mm-hmm. Of, so t- tell me your own story. First of all, describe a millipede f- first. Um, it's kind of shiny, black, um, segmented. There are about um, two pairs of feet on each segment. They can be very tiny. They can grow larger. Um, do, do they move quickly? They, they can move quickly enough, and they can roll up in a little ball if they're frightened or think they're under attack. So you often see them as sort of little black balls. Um, and when, so, when, when we talk about an infestation then, I mean, are we talking, mm-hmm. you know, five or ten of them? Or are we talking about... 20 or 30. What, 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 like, what, what well, kind of numbers me, are they moving? Well, for me now, I have very few because I've been using diatomaceous earth. Uh, but they will come at this time of the year because they like being in rotted material. So as leaves rot um, in damp areas, crawl spaces, behind cabinets, around leaky pipes. So when you want to treat for these things, you've got to go where they live or where they're, where they're attracted to. So, yeah, and, and and tell me your own story then. When when did you start noticing them coming into the house? I mean, I I think they're they're just part of of life in in rural Ireland. Uh, they're they're you know it, it's you're going to see them at at certain times of the year, especially when it's damp. Now we've recently had 
more rain. So yeah, I've I've had them, um, but not only that. Um, there are loads of bugs in, <laughs> in rural Ireland in any rural area, and they're attracted um, to warm spaces. So they're trying to get into your house. Yeah, I, although I have to, like, I grew up, uh, you know, well out into the country, and I saw a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, creepies uh, over the years, but mm-hmm. I don't actually have any memory of any large numbers of these millipedes uh, indoors. Well, they look like very thin little worms. They look like little black worms. And obviously, if they're allowed to continue to live in your house, you'll see them getting bigger. Mm. But, how, um, how, how long are they? Would they be like an inch, two inches? They, they, they can be an inch, two inches. Yeah. Right. Okay. I <laughs> I, I think it's the fact of all those little feet that are, that kind of gives me uh, <laughs> gives me uh, a little bit of the yeah. uh, heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but definitely diatomaceous earth worked for all critters. Well, that's Lisa. Then Thomas called. I have had this issue, and I've never seen them before. I don't blame you for saying that you haven't noticed them before because they've never been around my house before, and uh, I've seen most bugs. Mm-hmm. And these are a nuisance. They're starting to die away now, but they're, they're here all summer. And I've had to, you know, move stuff off the kitchen counter when you come down and you get your breakfast. You don't know where they've been. So yeah. I'd be glad to get the, the name of that product. Um, well, we'll, put it, we'll, we'll put it up. Uh, yeah, we'll thanks. put it up on the Twitter. But tell me your own story. So you, is this year the first year that you, you... Yeah, I've literally never seen them before. I'm not saying you wouldn't see yeah. an old similar looking bug. Yeah. But the infestation, it's not like a thousand of them, but if you could nearly set your watch by them at 10 o'clock at night, there they are outside uh, climbing up the walls. And really? they'd be kind of gone in the morning. There's an odd straggler hanging about. But, um, oh you know, I do, you don't I, know where they've been walking over, you know. I, do, I don't know what it is about these. I'm looking at a photograph of one now, but it's just not something I, I want, want to be it. crawling over my kitchen counters, <laughs> no, no. I have to say. Uh, when you say crawling up the... Like, so do they come in the windows? Where, where do they... How do I they get into the house? I don't know where they get in. I think they're kind of like snails. They can squeeze into any hole. They're small anyway. But they, they're just mm-hmm. literally uh, crawling up the walls about 10 o'clock at night, especially on a damp night. That's all I know. Um, and where do they yeah. go then when they come in? God knows. Uh, I wouldn't like to think. I've met them in the bedroom, in walking the, down the hall, you name it. In the bedroom? Yeah, absolutely. In, in, yeah, would they go into a bed? <laughs> I didn't ask them, but they're on the floor, that's for sure, you know, so they can crawl anywhere they've got that many legs. I have a useful little item in years. They call it a bug, bug buster, a kind of a little mini vacuum thing. You can just... But I've been around every 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 night. Um, you know, there's always one up here and everywhere you go. But it, it gets rid of them quickly, but then you just throw them out the window. But I'd like to have some product <laughs> to stop the, them coming in. Maybe the guys you were throwing out the window are coming back again the next night. <laughs> oh, nothing would surprise me. Well, that's Thomas. Then Helen called with her story. A few years ago, um, we have a holiday home in the west of Ireland. And when we would arrive up over the years, there'd be a few dead millipedes on the ground, you know, um, and that was fine. But then a few years back, um, when we arrived up, there were actually quite a lot of live ones in the house, but they were all on the floor. Now, there was nothing up high on the floor around skirtings, you know, that kind of thing, but too many for my liking. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to, to ring a pest control to see what... Um, companies to see what um, they would charge for coming out to do something about it and it was in the region of a few hundred euro to get the the house sprayed inside 
so I decided then to try myself to do something about it. So I sprayed all around the driveway and the I floors of the house with Jay's fluid. Jay's my fluid. father always believed in Jay's fluid and um, that didn't do anything at all. Like the, the man said, the bleach, it did, just didn't do anything at all. So then I bought ant powder and um, put it along the skirtings, you know, the edges of the skirtings and discovered that that killed them. And eventually um, the, the infestation was, you know, killed and removed but um so from then i was um yeah a deliver- delivery man came up to the house and smelled the jay suit around the house saw the ant powder around the prim- perimeter of the house and um he asked me what the problem was and he said that a client of his um had the same problem with millipedes so he, she had used a product called Biffin, B-I-F-I-N. Um, it's an American product sold on Amazon. Um, it's for killing cockroaches and other insects. So I bought some of it and um, sprayed it around the house um, the, you know, the following year before we came up and there was nothing in the house at all. Nothing um, at all. There was dead millipedes outside the house, but nothing in the house. And uh, it, this is a liquid spray, is it? It's a liquid spray. It's highly toxic because mm-hmm. it's used it is used for cockroach um, infestations. But um, uh, yeah, you have to have, you wear protective cover your clothing and masks and all of that sort of thing when right. you when you're using it. And you wouldn't be. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking if anyone with pets or, or cats or, or dogs or anything like that. I, I'd say it would, you would be, be able dangerous. To do that, now, yeah. You know, there's lots of cautions on the um, the leaflet with it. You know, right. so it's. It's not something I was fond of using, but I used it because I didn't want the same to happen the next year. But what I, this, this year, because of the toxic nature of the, the product, I decided to just use the ant powder. Um, early on in the year, I filled the drip t- trays of the, the aluminium doors with ant powder. And when we came, came back up you know, to the house, we discovered that there was a few dead millipedes in the, the trays, but nothing got into the house at all. So that seems to have cured the problem, really. You know? Helen, then Barry was talking about other house visitors. Well, mouse, mice is a bit of a problem now this oh. time of year. All right. Yes. Yes. I have to keep my traps set there all year round and I just go up, to, I check my traps every morning and I go up and just check one of my traps there this morning and I noticed the trap was moved up, turned upside down and there was a wee baby mouse in it and I was just caught by one leg. Okay. And what do you so do with that? Well, I had it taken outside and um, kill it. Right. Give it to the with, your, with your bare hands? No, I hit it. I hit it the crack of something. So I did. Right. I did. Okay, I hope nobody's trying see, to eat their lunch right the problem now. problem now too, do you see? You're coming in now to a sudden cold spell in the weather. Yeah. And that's People what... leaving windows, doors open all day and a mouse can just, a split second, it can be in and take up nesting in the house. Yeah. And, and and yeah, if once you get a family of mice, it can it can it can uh, get out of control yeah. fairly quickly, right? And one mouse can have up to twelve or thirteen babies at any one time. Indeed. And then after three weeks, the babies what that mouse had, they can give birth after three weeks. Is that all it is? It's three weeks is the life. The baby oh. mice are up running around in ten days. To fit to feed themselves and fend for themselves. Right. Well, that's Barry there. Let's hear Pauline's problem with gnats. I have a problem with gnats. Now, a lot of people don't know what gnats are. They're like large fruit flies, but I don't think they're related to fruit flies because I've been googling and looking up to find out what I can about them. But 
they have they're in my home for the last three or four years. They come around the beginning of September. Um, I could the other night I had fourteen last night fourteen on the landing which I hoovered up. Uh, they come into the kitchen, they come onto the landing and they come into the bedroom. And it's not an old house. It was built in 1990s. Um, I do have a lot of foliage around. I don't think I have dampness because the walls have been done. They have been impregnated with these little polystyrene balls. Um, and I just don't know what to do. And I, yeah, but where, where, where are they coming from, do you think? I mean, are they I com- don't know can't even begin to think, Katie. I'm going around brandishing the hoover like a serial killer on the landing with it on, with the tube catching them. And it's the only thing that can catch them because if I go at them with a cushion or anything like that, they hide. Um, I've I've searched outside to see, can I see them? I can't. Um, They don't come into all the bedrooms. They come into our bedroom. They come into one other. They don't come into the other two. They don't come into one of the bathrooms, either bathroom. They didn't come into the kitchen last night because we lit the stove. Um, so the lighting, no, the, lighting the stove actually keeps them out? I've never noticed that before, but I just said it to my husband afterwards. None of them came into the kitchen last night and I was delighted and I thought maybe we've none. Then I come upstairs and there were 14 on the landing ceiling. 14? Oh, now, another time I went in, there were 18 in the bedroom on the ceiling. So it's not, and I would have killed about 12, 14 downstairs in the kitchen. So it's not as if there's just one or two. There are loads of them and they hang out on the ceiling. They're very, very quick movers. Once I approach to kill them, they're gone. They hide. Otherwise, they just kind of drift around the place. And uh, yeah, like are they, so they're bigger than fruit flies, but smaller than than house flies. An average fly, much smaller than house flies. They have a very skinny little brown body, nearly the size of a nail clipping. Um, Small little wings and... um, as I said, they don't, they, they just seem to hang. They don't fly around madly like flies do when they come in. They just hang around. But once you begin to approach them, I have to be very quick with the hoover. And because of the blast, the way that it pulls them in, I can get rid of most of them. And you might find, I see actually one. I'm upstairs now. I see one on the landing. Usually you don't see them till night time. There's actually one now. I probably missed him last night. And but I, do they bite or, or do they bother you in no, any other way? They ju- no, just hang around? not at all. They just hang around. They're utterly harmless. But it's very disconcerting if you're sitting in bed and you see 10 of them on the ceiling. That's Pauline on the live line with Katie Hannan. And on Today with Claire Byrne, thousands suffering the effects of long COVID. Now, last week, the doll was told that there are about 21,000 people in Ireland who are unable to go to work due to long COVID. And the latest figures from the World Health Organisation says that say that 17 million people in the European region have experienced long COVID. And with those figures in mind, the question is, are we doing enough to support those who are suffering with this condition? In a moment, I'll speak to Dr Yvonne Williams a GP based in Clare. But first I want to speak to Sinn Féin TD for Wicklow, John Brady. Good morning, John. Good morning, Clare. How are you? I'm good. You you got COVID in October 2020. 
That's right. Um, my daughter would have been out on, on placement as a, a student nurse and we, we, we think it was herself that possibly brought it into the house. So it spread like wildfire um, and my, myself and most of the household uh, contracted it at that stage um, and it hit us all pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you were, you were quite were the sick days. at the time, were you? Quite, quite sick. Um, that was uh, pre-vaccine, so um, we, we hadn't got that level of, of, of protection. So it spread throughout the, the whole household and we were all like uh, most people that got it, um, you know, floored uh, for, for a good week or, or, or more as a result of it. And then you get through the initial couple of weeks, but when did you start to realise that you hadn't fully recovered? Um, probably a month or so after that, Claire, I uh, do a, a little bit of running in my spare time just to try to keep it a little bit sane. So um, I, I found myself with a, a constant cough, um, you know, unable to um, catch my breath, um, etc. So I would have went to uh, the GP and made no connection whatsoever at that stage with, with, with COVID, nor indeed the, the GP. He put it down as, um, you know, uh, some sort of asthma that I was... Uh, developing or, or um, starting to um, get, you know, so um, there was no connection with, with, with mm-hmm. COVID or, or long COVID or anything like that. And he, he uh, put me on an inhaler then at, at, at that stage, but, you know, it, it just uh, progressed and certainly um, didn't shift it or alleviate it to any great degree. You mentioned a cough there. Can you describe other symptoms? Is there an issue with trying to catch your breath or a feeling that you just can't get enough oxygen? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's it's persisted now for, for for two years, and it's you know it's 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 morning times for for me personally is is probably the worst. Um, you know, and I apologise to all the neighbours um, who you know probably hear me most mornings. Um, and when, when when I do any physical exercise, um, running or, or anything like that, it's it's just persistent there that you know I, I just it feels nearly that there, there's some, something sitting on my lungs mm-hmm. that I, I just can't shift, um, you know, and, and struggling to, uh, you know, catch a, a, a breath. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of there constantly. And are you um, still running? It's, it's still trying, Claire. Um, and again, um, you know, when I'm in the gym or whatever on the treadmill, I, I, I get all sorts of looks, um, you know, because I'm, you know, literally coughing my way uh, through it and, you know, the same way when I'm out, um, you know, and it, it, it lasts maybe half an hour and, and kind of shifts then. Um, so it's, it's it's not there constantly. It's it's probably for the, the first half an hour or so. So yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty strange. And John went to his GP and their suspicion was of asthma. Sent for, for chest x-rays. They, they came back clear. Um, but the, the cough obviously persisted with the, 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 the first inhaler was given it was given a second inhaler then which I, I, I was told was a, a stronger inhaler um, and again un, un, unfortunately it's it persisted um, and had done over the last year and a half or, or there thereabouts um, un, unfortunately I, I caught COVID a second time um, in August and it's, it's probably just compounded things mm-hmm. um, you know kind of um, after a year and a half or so, it was fairly evident that the GPs had, had given up on, on asthma. They were saying, look, it, it is, um, it's, it's a long COVID. We don't have the the knowledge or the, or, or the skills. We just don't know how to how to treat it. Um, and back in, in, in June, this was prior to me contracting COVID a second time. 
Um, I the GPs not that they washed their hands of it. They just said, look, it's it's above us. Um, we're going to refer you to the long COVID clinic in in, in St Vincent's, and that was back in, in June. Um, I haven't heard anything um, from uh, the guys there in, in, in St Vincent's. Contracted it again in in um, August. COVID again in August. Um, more chest X-rays. Um, this time the the GP um, again uh, referred me over to uh, St Vincent's. But he, he said, no, look, wasting your time with um, in, inhalers. He actually uh, uh, gave me a prescription for for a cough bottle, a codeine cough bottle. So there seems to be a, a level of, you know, GPs not known, haven't got the knowledge or, or, or the skill set mm-hmm. as to what exactly is the best or just cure trying or, everything. or how to alleviate yeah, it. Try, so, trying you know, everything wait, they can waiting. probably yeah, to see. Um, absolutely. So just waiting on, on, on the long COVID clinic uh, to, 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 to come back to me and, you know, I suppose that's the hope for uh, the GPs have as, as yeah. well. And that, we, you know. we know we've heard the long COVID clinic is, is swamped, but have you tried to contact them yourself or have you asked the GP to push it for you? Because you've been referred in June and we're now at the end of mm. September and you've heard nothing? I heard nothing and um, no, I haven't um, touched base uh, personally or, or anything like that, Claire. I just, you know, I'm very conscious that, you know, there's many thousands. I, I, I think it's estimated that up to 115,000 people could or, or, or may develop long COVID. So certainly, you know, um, conscious of, uh, of mm-hmm. the pressures uh, that, you know, the long COVID clinics are, are, are under. Um, and, you know, just looking at their, their, the website, um, you know, during the week, and, and this is what set alarm bells off for me, you know, and um, I'm sure for many people there who are waiting on, you know, someone in the long COVID clinics to, to touch base. I mean, they're, they're saying due to the large number of affected patients and limited available resources, we may not be able to uh, see everyone referred to uh, St. Vincent's Long COVID Clinic. And, and that's, you know, it's 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 disappointing that the resources aren't there because I can only speak for my quality of life um, that I'm you know experiencing as a result of uh, long COVID the impact that it's having on on me. But conscious, there's many thousands of others in a worse situation um, that, that than me with more yeah, you know but... severe um, uh, you know effects. Well, I, we got in touch with the, the with St Vincent's about the current waiting times for patients, and they said that the total number of patient visits to the clinic is 1,802. 616 are new visits, 1,186 are return visits. They say all patients referred to the clinic will be seen with urgent referrals being given an appointment within four weeks. But the current waiting time for a routine appointment once referred to the long COVID clinic is approximately four months. Now that's pretty much where you're at at the moment, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And look, I mean, uh, the the reason, Claire, why I I, I spoke out, it wasn't, you know, to, to jump a list or anything like that. I, I suppose it was just to highlight, try to give a, a voice to the thousands of people who are experiencing, yeah, um, maybe you know, the same that, that, situation. that long COVID and, and, okay. and put a spotlight on it. John Brady there. Then Yvonne Williams, a GP in Clare, spoke about the need for supports for long COVID sufferers in the area. We are seeing a lot of patients coming in and we're seeing, I think, particularly the younger patients who were very active and were having very busy lives because it's, it's a huge change in their quality of life for them. Uh, the British Medical Journal estimates that for the average kind of GP, maybe 2,000 patients in the UK, they would have 25 
patients with, with you know, quite significant long COVID symptoms and the average Irish GP would probably have double that because of the, the shortage of GPs we have here. And in the Midwest, despite Limerick having one of the highest rates of COVID throughout the various waves, we still don't have a long COVID clinic up and running. So at least in Dublin, there is somewhere at the moment you can refer people to. Um, all we can do for our patients, if it's primarily lung problems, breathing problems, is refer them into the general lung clinic, which already has massive waiting lists. And have you done what John was describing there, the inhalers, investigating asthma, the codeine cough bottles? Do you go through all of that process with somebody like that? So I suppose the, the issue with long COVID is that for some people it's a lot of lung and breathing symptoms, other people it's chest, other people it's brain fog, you know, mental health problems afterwards. You know, there's a huge range of symptoms. So I suppose the first thing you do is to make sure it's not anything else and that it wasn't something perhaps that was missed when, when these patients had COVID. A lot of them would have been at home. So you're doing your chest X-ray and your, your bloods and your basic workup. And then if all of those are normal, um, there is no standard protocol worldwide for long COVID. So it, it's very much trial and error. So you're treating the symptoms. So people with a lot of pain, you might be using anti-inflammatories people with sleep issues, we might use melatonin, people with breathing problems some people get relief from steroids you know a longer course of steroids or even antibiotics for their anti-inflammatory effect um, so you tailor it to the patient in front of you but there is no standard protocol anywhere for treating long COVID um, and there's a lot of research going into it so you're, you're really treating the symptoms that each patient has and it really needs for people with severe symptoms you, you need a multidisciplinary team approach in a long COVID clinic it, it's not enough to just have a focus on the lungs you know you need a psychologist you need a physiotherapist there you need uh, lung function tests for people um, cardiology tests people might need stress tests and so on and their heart to see is there any damage Done. Okay. So generally you're going to end up with a referral to somewhere. If you have a long COVID clinic in your area, that's where you'll be heading or into a hospital. For the more severe symptoms, for some of the milder symptoms, you know, not everybody has symptoms after a year or two years. So for by long COVID, I suppose we're talking about people who have significant symptoms after 12 weeks. Um, and they can improve, but I suppose the biggest thing you can do to protect yourself from it is to be vaccinated, but it's not predictable. You you can have mild COVID at home, you know, for a couple of days and end up with chronic fatigue afterwards or headaches or, you know, insomnia, change in your taste that can persist. Um, and they can be really debilitating. If you mm-hmm. can't taste your food or smell properly anymore, you know, that affects your whole, your whole day, really. GP Yvonne Williams from Today with Claire Barron. Well, he gained worldwide recognition for his role as Varys in Game of Thrones and he's currently on our screens in the Graeme Norton series holding. Northern Irish actor Conleth Hill was Oliver Callan's guest in the morning. You are actually from... What part of Antrim are you from, Conleth? Um, a place called Ballycastle. Any objections? Because Game of Thrones is a huge thing in your life. It was. It took up about 10 years of my life and it was definitely life-changing and... Uh, most proud that the, a lot of it was made up here. So, yeah, very, very um, surreal but brilliant experience. Well, but was it wasn't really life-changing because you'd already made your name. Um, yeah, but I'd never... I, I'd, I suppose I was uh, done a lot of theatre, Oliver, uh, but yeah. this was the first kind of big, uh, long-running worldwide TV show I was involved in. And when you set out at the beginning in 2011, we would have seen on the screens, I mean, you weren't obviously going to know it was going to go on for so long or be... No, or whether you'd actually be in it for as long as you would be, you know. Yeah. There was always the... One of the most uh, brilliant things about it was the, the killing off of, of <laughs> great parts, you know, quite early on. Because you Sean, assume... Yeah, you, you, Sean Bean, you're kind of going, well, he must be going for the whole thing. Yeah, even when we were filming the scene of his demise, I kept thinking, no, nah, they won't do that, they can't do that. 
that they did. So, yeah, so there was always that danger um, and possibility that you would be out any minute. So it was exciting times. And when you, at, the, at this stage, because you've done a lot of Broadway, you had won your Tonys and Olivier Awards, two of both. Oh, I didn't know. I never won any Tonys, but thanks a million. <laughs> uh, I was nominated for... Uh, I did, nominated? Uh, yeah, uh, Stones in His Pockets and then uh, Connor McPherson's The Seafair, Mary Jones Stones in His Pockets. So, yeah, I had finished those by then. So I suppose, yeah, theatre-wise I would have been known, but not TV and film, I don't think. Celebrate in other ways. What I was coming to there is that it brought you to London and Broadway, which I presume were your big bases, uh, whereas Game of Thrones happily brought you home, didn't it? It was. It was very, very fortuitous, as I say. Um, you know, a, a lovely ten years living at home and working at home and, and getting to go all over the world on great locations. And um, a lot of spin-off show, a lot of spin-off casting going on because obviously it made the name of so many actors. And uh, because you're talking to us this morning about holding, yes. Uh, so are the roles all coming thick and fast since Game of Thrones? Um, I was always all right, thank God, but um, I was always very picky. Yeah. <laughs> um, as in, uh, script was would, would usually be the first factor if the script is brilliant. But with Holden, it was a combination of so many brilliant uh, elements, like uh, that young fella Graham Norton. I don't know if you've heard of him, but <laughs> it was his debut novel. And then um, Dominic and Karen's scripts and Kathy Burke directing and the brilliant cast that we had, you know, with Fricker and Siobhan McSweeney. And it was just location, everything was just a, a great uh, deal. And um, you had to slip into a Garda uniform. Do you remember your, <laughs> your first day getting into a Garda uniform, what that felt like? Um, everybody, the drivers treated me with a little more respect, I have to say. And uh, I was asked a couple of times whilst filming, would it be all right to park somewhere? And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not a real uh, guard. You have to ask them. <laughs> People are going, oh, yeah, can we park here? Yeah, but I mean, I've noticed that over my life, that, you know, how you are as a certain character, will, how people behave. It's, it's amazing, you know, to to observe, you know, like even as Varus, when I wasn't in all the gear, people would think I was a bouncer or security or something. Just because of the shaved head, yeah. And I mean, like, completely shaved head, like razor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but only for only every summer. So, you know, first time was a bit sad, and after that I got used to it all right. Because you have a fine head of hair. Yes, yes, I do. It's, it's one of my finest um, <laughs> assets, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, Varus is a bald eunuch, we should say. You're yeah. fine head of hair, but we won't go into that. We, we presume everything is OK. Oh, no, that was his method as I got, <laughs> just cutting the hair, nothing else. <laughs> okay. And um, that obviously is very fortuitous for you, considering just how huge and uh, Game of Thrones became and how fanatical the fans became, because Varus being so distinctive as a bald head and you walking around with a, a, a you know, head of hair, I presume you don't get maybe as recognised for that role. No, but I wouldn't really be for anything specifically. I mean, I've been very lucky that all the roles have been so different and diverse. And, and uh, you know, even since finishing Game of Thrones, that the, the work I've done has been all kinds of everything. And so I suppose that's a curse or a blessing of being a character actor is you're not identified as the cornflakes boy or this fella or whatever. You know, you can play a lot different kind of roles. Can you explain to us what a character actor is? Well, basically, you're not the lead. Sometimes yeah. characters, like in Holding, would would character actors would be a lead, but it's usually a, a sort of matinee idol or a, you know a very good-looking Jimmy Nesbitt or you know that kind of thing is your normal lead. So, to, uh, to for a character to get a lead is amazing. So you know, then you're not going to be typecast as as anything. 
Well, I haven't been so far, thank God. No. And uh, although, you know, there are brilliant people who play similar characters all the time, it's just such a different uh, setup. And Oliver asked Conlith about his father's work in TV news during the Troubles. Uh, now, when you grow up in, in the North during the Troubles, inevitably these questions uh, will come to you. But uh, I mean, I think it's fascinating that you grew up in, in the arts during the Troubles, didn't you? And your, your father was involved in television. Yeah, he was a, a news cameraman, Patsy Hill, yeah. and he filmed some terrible um, things over the years. But the arts were always, a, a, you know, the lyric theatre and uh, never stopped producing all through the worst of times. And people from all different backgrounds always worked together. In fact, the reality is most of us, you know, even through the worst of times up here, worked together anyway. I mean, I think it's amazing and probably we don't talk about it enough, the fact that, you know, there is a great uh, culture and art scene going on all through that period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Neeson came out of that and mm. uh, lots of, you know, Jimmy Ellis, lots of brilliant people. Kieran Hines. Um, and brilliant, yeah, and excellent uh, examples for younger people to aspire to, yeah. Uh, and yourself. And so when you kind of go from that uh, theatre world, you know, the, the the arc really from the North in those times to the Derry Girls uh, period, which you, which you get your starring turn in, of course, in the last in the last season, you, you've obviously experienced the full narrative arc of the North, I suppose. Well, I guess so. I've never really looked at it that way. I'm just uh, living my life. <laughs> okay. And no one in the North does. Obviously yeah, but I mean, I, I think there's a reticence as well because of who we are and where we're from that you know, you be as apolitical as possible in order to tell other people who are so different from you stories, yeah. you know. And, and you've kept your head down in that regard. But also because you're a character actor, is it fair to say that you, you despite being in such huge shows throughout your career and theatre-wise, you've kept a, a kind of a low profile? Well, it's, again, it's not... Uh, I think there's an assumption that we all strive for that. But I don't know, I think it's been from the Glens as well, as you don't show off and you keep your head down, you get on with it, you know. From the north of Antrim, the Glens yeah. of Antrim. Yeah. There's a sort of a don't, um, don't swagger. No, unless you're a really brilliant hurler and then, you know, all bets are off. <laughs> yeah, OK. Well, you have to play a county, don't forget. Uh, oh, yeah. In order to have that a little bit of gloss. Yeah, or be an all-star. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah an all-star. Um, suits, you were in Suits. I was, yeah. I did two series of that and had a great time. And remind us, because I remember watching it, um, you, were, you were an English lawyer in it, were you? Yes, he was a very um, uh, <coughs> English lawyer who wanted to basically take over the, uh, the company in the States. And uh, obviously this is the Meghan Markle period of Suits, and there, there's not much record of you uh, talking about Meghan Markle much. Did you bump into her on the cast? Yeah, she was lovely, really lovely, and uh, that's all I have to say. <laughs> you know, there's nothing to add. I can't say how I knew from the, the day I met her she would be a princess or anything like that. She was just a, a very pleasant human being. You know, even uh, because it's Meghan Markle, everything's so charged. Even what you've said will be read into. Oh, yeah. But that does, anything you say is read <laughs> into anyway, you yeah. know. And, well, and also the, the, the tone will be changed. You know, some yeah, people exactly. will say I said it with a sneer or whatever, yeah. even if I didn't, you know. So if the Daily Mail is listening, look, he, <laughs> he's from the Glens of Antrim. Yeah. 
they don't have to rein it in. They don't give it. They don't give much away in yeah, things. That's no. the, that's the oh best well, they got to sell papers, don't they? They do, and they certainly do off the back of of herself. Um, so, uh, so you have the suits experience. You have the Game of Thrones world. I mean, what is? I, mean, I actually turned on. This is the sort of thing I was saying that you are a low key actor because I, I turned on Magpie Murders before I knew I was even speaking to you the other day. Oh, and right. There you are in the opening scenes, and you have a great fun in that very pompous kind of horrible oh, he character. Was such a, an a H, yes. Um, but lovely. Again, you know, that's it. It's just, the, you know, it's the diversity of things you're offered and, and you just go, oh, this is, this is different. I'll have a go at this. But a lot of that was filmed in Ireland, uh, up in the Wicklow Hills. and Yes, in and around Dublin and City Centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks it's great. great show. We stand in well for London at times. Uh, oh, we can do anything. For, for um, an, an, a northern actor, because it's such a heavy accent, the northern accent, um, they're not always great at doing accents. You don't seem to struggle at all. Well, I, I think all of us forget that we were brought up with English and, I, and American television. Yeah. And so as kids, we played with English accents and American accents, depending on the game. So, yeah, it wasn't, it's not so hard. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're bombarded with it all the time, so it's there. So holding, it's on Monday nights at the moment on Virgin Media 1, the Virgin Media Player. We can catch the whole thing as well. It's a four-part series. Um, tell us what's happening next. Um, well, nowadays you have so many um, disclosures, you know, non-disclosure uh, things to sign. So I can't talk ah. about everything, but I know um, coming up in January I'll be doing a new series with Sean Gibson and... Paul Coleman, who who were co-writers of Car, Car Share with the brilliant Peter Kay. Yeah. And that's a, a completely new series, so I'm looking forward to that. Undoing Martin Parker. That's it, yeah. So well it's done. set in Manchester in the 90s, early yeah, 90s? Yeah, and he's, a, he's got a, he's a, again, very different. He's got all the charm of Kilroy, and uh, he's a Thatcherite, <laughs> and uh, he's oh, wow. uh, on a downward spiral. That sounds, that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It's great fun. We did the pilot last year and it was such fun. You enjoy that. Listen, Conlon Hill, we look forward to watching you in, uh, as a character actor down the ages. Uh-huh. And uh, congratulations on the fact that you've escaped the Game of Thrones selfies phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm always happy to do a selfie. So, <laughs> right. good, okay. It only takes 30 seconds. Conlon Hill talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. Now, often described as Putin's public enemy number one, Bill Browder was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning about the current situation in Russia's war on Ukraine. So what's your assessment of of what's happened in the last week or so? Is it too soon to say if this is a turning point? Well, it's it's definitely a turning point. It's just what does it turn into? Um, You know, Putin has dealt with lots of public unrest. I mean, it's been a it's been a rough time to be a Russian for the last decade. And many times we've seen people filling up public squares, chanting lots of nasty things about Putin. But he runs an uh, authoritarian regime, which has now become close to a totalitarian regime. And he has shown time and time again that he can uh, clamp down and repress this type of stuff. And so the question is, um, you know, is is his repression going to work this time? Yeah, and we see, you know, with these protests that people are very brave. They come out onto the streets, they chant their slogans, and then they're very swiftly bundled into vans and, and taken away. I mean, you just wonder how long that people can sustain those protests in, in cities and towns. Well, I think that, that um, this is probably the, the greatest challenge to the Putin regime 
you know, before they were angry about living conditions. Now they're angry about being sent to die in a use in a senseless war in Ukraine. And so if they have nothing to lose, um, you know, I mean, the, the key to the whole thing is will more and more people come out because they can arrest five, 10, 100, maybe even a thousand, but they can't arrest a million people. And so if the Russians, if this thing keeps on spiraling out of control, then they may very well lose control, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons, by the way, why Putin was so reluctant to do a conscription. He, he understood that people could support a war and all sorts of terrible atrocities when it didn't affect them. But all of a sudden now the Russians are finding that it's going to affect them personally and now they're upset about it. And this looks very like mandatory conscription. I mean, it's being called a partial mobilisation. But last week, the Russian parliament approved laws that criminalise desertion and voluntary surrender with punishment of up to 10 years. I mean, how do you define this decree and, and what is being done? Oh, it's conscription, plain and simple, in the same way as they defined the war in Ukraine as a a special military operation. You know, they, they try to use language to to minimize the effect, but everybody understands what's going on. They're all young men are getting these letters or, or calls in the middle of the night. And literally, you know, from one evening to the next, they're being put on buses and shipped off to the front lines. And what do you make of how the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has responded over the weekend? A very strategic message going out to him, from him to Russian soldiers, saying that you'll be treated in a civilised manner if you surrender. Your surrender will remain undisclosed, the circumstances around it and so on. And if you don't want to go back to Russia, that won't happen. It's a genius move. It's, it's, it's obvious that most people have no appetite for this war, that they have no... They don't want to die um, and they don't want the Russians to put them, the Russian government to put them in jail for, for resisting. And if they can go and surrender, be safe and then not even have it disclosed that they surrendered, it's a, it sounds like a better option for them. And on the sanctions front, and, and you've spoken to us before on this programme about how you've been campaigning for years for these sanctions to happen. And then once the, the war began, the sanctions came to pass in a very short space of time. Are they working, though? Are they effective? Definitely. I mean, what you see right now is is that the, the amount of money that's available to Putin is is diminishing. Um, the um, Western technology that they need to build tanks and things doesn't exist anymore. And so they have production lines have been uh, shut down. Now, the, there's one thing really important to, to know, though, which is that that we, we've sanctioned a lot of stuff, but but there's still a ton of money going every day for the purchase of Russian oil and gas. And that's the money that Putin uses, you know, to buy Iranian drones to kill you, the people in Ukraine and to buy North Korean artillery and, and so on and so forth. And so we still have a ways to go before we completely shut down Putin's ability to fund this war. But we've made a, 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 some good headway and, and I think that there's um, still more that can be done. So we're still allowing the movement of money? Well, we continue to buy Russian oil and gas, even with all these embargoes and so on and so forth, there's still money, you know, the, for, for example, the Chinese and Indians are buying a lot of Russian oil. Uh, we could easily fix this. We could say, you know, if you, if you want to do business with the G7, the, the most powerful economic bloc in the world, you can't do business with Russia, you, you know, pick sides. Mm -hmm. And we haven't, we haven't quite got there yet, but, yeah. but I think we're going to get there if, if Putin keeps on escalating. Do, do you, though, because we're in a very precarious economic situation now, particularly related to energy, you just wonder if there is capacity to take any more moves there. 
But let me tell you, we'll be in a hell of a lot more economic precarious situation if we all have to go to war with Russia, which is the way this thing is heading. I mean, we have to do whatever we can to stop a war that we have to be involved in. Right now, we're just supporting the Ukrainians. And if paying high high fuel prices or high electricity prices it's, it, is the cost of that, it's a lot, lot less than having to put boots on the ground in Ukraine or, or elsewhere in Eastern Europe if this thing goes further. What, what, do you ex- what do you think might take it to that point? Well, basically, Putin, so, so Putin is playing it out as if he's taking it to that point. So what is he saying? He's saying that we're now going to uh, make a bunch of Ukraine that we've occupied part of Russia. And then afterwards, he's going to say any, in, any invasion by Ukrainians into those parts is an attack on Russia. And then he's going to say all these Western countries are supporting Ukrainians by doing that, and therefore they're attacking Russia, and therefore open season on everybody. That, that's that's kind of his logic. Whether he follows through all the way to the end is, is sort of a game of chicken that we're all involved in. But mm-hmm. we need to be doing everything we possibly can to um, to to let to support the Ukrainians to to like stop him where he is and push him back because otherwise we're going to be involved. And Claire asked Bill Browder if Putin was bluffing about using nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Well, I think that that he's um, got a lot to lose by doing that, and it's not sure it's not clear what he's got to gain if he were to uh, use a, a tactical nuclear weapon in in Ukraine. What happens to the uh, fallout? It probably goes over Russia. What happens to all the um, uh, Chinese and Indians and South Africans who are supporting him? They abandon him, you know. And 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 also the United States. Um, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, has come out and said there will be devastating consequences if he does that. And I, I do believe that that is a very very big red line for the whole world. So, you know, we're um you know we're we're in a you know this is like a Cuban missile crisis type of situation we're in right now, and we all have to understand that that. Um, this is not a war that any of us invited, but this is a war that he's, uh, you know, putting us all into and, and we have to respond forcefully. There's another thing that he could do, which we discussed on this programme last week, which would be to attack one of the nuclear plants in Ukraine, which is not using nuclear weapons, but it has ultimately the same effect. Indeed. And, and I think that, that any type of action like that will, will completely isolate Russia, all, the, all of his uh, supposed allies um, in these non-aligned countries will abandon him if he does that because it, it just creates a, a, a you know a huge catastrophe for the whole world we were talking about um, Russian men who have been called now to to fight and many of them were trying to escape we saw that flights were booked up to the countries where they could travel to and there have been calls for other Western nations to block all Russians entering their countries to allow no visas for Russians including ordinary members of the public tourists and so on do you support that? I do. So the the Russians who were who were openly against the Kremlin have already uh, emigrated, and that that happened at the beginning of the war. And then we also have had to house the victims of the Russians' invasion, the Ukrainians, who are genuine victims and genuine refugees. These people now, they're the ones that want to serve. Well, they they should be in their own country protesting and and uh, you know wearing down. Putin's ability to do that. They, 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 the Russians, this, they've, they've put Putin in place. It's their responsibility to get rid of him. Bill Browder from Today with Claire Byrne. And it was a lucky escape for Dee Dawes when she jumped from her bedroom window after a devastating house fire. 
and she talked about that night of the 29th of August with Ray Darcy in the afternoon. Uh, my husband works nights in Kappa Hospital. Right. So I was home alone. Well, two dogs and two cats were actually in the kitchen, but uh, humans, there was only just me in the house. Okay. What time and did you go to bed at? I went to bed at 11 and about roughly, I'd say it was between three and say half three, I woke up coughing and I, I just, just coughing and coughing and I could see a light kind of under my bedroom door and I opened the door and there were, there were fire doors, thank God. I opened the door and I could see lots of flames and smoke. So um, I put my right foot out onto the landing to see could I get downstairs and I couldn't. It burned my foot, uh, two toes on my right foot. So I closed the door. Thank God there were fire doors. And I closed the door again and I knew that the house was on fire. Right. Um, that I couldn't get out that way. And, and I couldn't go. And yeah. do you, had you got your phone? Nope, no phone. Phone, unfortunately, downstairs in the sitting room. And do you always leave it downstairs? No, I don't actually. I don't. Um, I always have it charged up um, beside me in the bedroom, um, but I didn't bring it up that night. Um, Why? You just I, you forgot it, or? I think I just left it downstairs. Yeah, it was yeah. fully charged. Do you know the way you would just don't think so? Always bring your phone to bed with you guys. Okay. And, and, and when you I, open that door, because we we see this in in movies, you know, and mm-hmm. and and how it's represented in soaps and all that sort of thing. And it always strikes me that there's this like we, I open up the oven sometimes. It might be at three hundred degrees, and your your eyes water, and you know there's this blast of heat. You can feel that your your skin is nearly turning a different colour. Yep. So was it? What was it? Was it like all that? Or well, I could get. Um, it didn't come in at me. Thank God. I don't know why. You know the way you see that. There's a film with. Um, oh, Kurt Russell, and he's in a film called Backdraft. Yes. He's a fireman. Yes. Yeah. Um, it didn't do that. But then again, maybe the bedroom windows were not open, uh-huh. so maybe that's why yeah. there wasn't a backdraft because of that. But um, I opened the fire door and all I just saw was like, a, it sounds crazy, like a ring of fire on the ground. There was just flames everywhere and smoke everywhere. So I did engulf some of that when I went to step out onto the landing with my right foot and it burnt. Yeah. The carpet, everything was on fire. My and um, yeah, so I stepped back in and I closed the door. I knew I had fire doors, so I knew that they would help me a bit. Mm. So I slammed the door closed. And now I did get a gulf of smoke and I went straight to, I have two bedroom windows. I have a, a bay window and then I have a small bedroom window. So I went to the small bedroom. It's like where there's a dressing area there. Mm. And I went to that window and I opened that window and I tried to get some air into myself. My eyes were, uh, I didn't know at the time, but they were uh, bloodshot when they told me in the ambulance. Yeah. And my, um, my my throat, I, I, I could barely talk. I could barely talk. Um, so I got some fresh air in and I, I stood in the room. It, it seemed like forever, but... Um, what was going through I, your head? Well, to be honest, what was going through my head was there was not an option of getting down the stairs or up the stairs. I could have went out. I have um, Felix windows at the top of the stairs, four Mm. Felix windows. There's another bedroom upstairs, and I just thought, no. 
if, if that carpet is all burnt there, I'm not going to get upstairs and get out that way onto the Velux windows. So Dee had to find another way to get out of the house. So I decided then to climb out the um, small window and I was sitting on the windowsill and trying to look through my eyes, which were all bloodshot. And it was, it was I saw I, I, so I was told it was half three in the morning. So it was dark. Mm. I didn't see anybody. Um, I didn't hear anybody. Um, I didn't see any cars going. I I was all croaky. I was I didn't I didn't call for help now I didn't. Um I could hear glass cracking. So I didn't know where it was cracking in the room. I could hear glass breaking. So then I thought if the fire gets into the room and then that window is open like the backdraft the uh-huh. film. Yes. Then I thought right it's going to push me out and then I won't have a choice which way to go really. So I decided, it seems like, uh, it seemed like a long time. So I decided then to turn myself around on the windowsill and lower myself down. Uh-huh. Uh, it's red brick. So I got my toes in between the bricks and I fed my toes down the wall like, I don't know, spider woman or whatever you want to So, want so to you're, you're holding on to the, probably yeah, the inside of the window. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. No, I was holding on to the windowsill. Just the windowsill. Okay. Just the windowsill. Right. It was grainy kind of windowsill. Right. So I turned myself around and I got my toes in. I was working okay. my feet yeah, down. Yeah. So at this, stage, I, at this stage, you were thinking, if I'm going to jump, that let's make yes. it the shorter distance, the, the exactly. shortest distance possible. That's, so you that's were, what I was. Aha. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's it's a detached house. You were on the the first floor. Well, yeah. You you probably know now because people have talked to you about this. But how far were your feet then from? I think about ten foot. Right, and and the your the front of the house was it a lawn or what was it? Concrete. Oh my word! And I was barefooted. Yeah. Okay. I had no slippers, nothing. I didn't even. I didn't even get time to think about throwing out pillows or nothing like that. Oh, that didn't I even, see, that would have been a great idea, wouldn't it? It would have been a fantastic. And my car was down below. I did think about jumping on the back of my car. My car was reversed in because it's, um, it's kind of a hybrid, so it was plugged in. Yeah. And I was contemplating jumping on the back of the car. Right. But then... It's aerodynamic, the car that I have, and I would have slid off and then I could have hit my head. So I thought the best option would be to turn around and try and work my way down and get myself as long as I can and then jump from there. And that's what I decided to do. I know. Like, it, it took an awful lot of presence of mind. It did, it did. And I'm very quick. You didn't yeah. scream or anything? No, no, I just took it upon myself that I said, I'm not dying in this room tonight. This is not where I'm going to die. I am going to get out. I have too much to live for. I've got nine grandchildren. I've got four daughters. I am getting out of here. I am living. I'm not dying in this room. That's Dee Dawes from The Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne, technology journalist Kira O'Brien was talking about gadgets that might come in handy during a blackout. So that dreaded moment when your phone dies, there's no electricity to recharge it. A lot of people can't live without their phones first and foremost. So how can we make sure that we can charge the phone when we have a blackout? 
Well, first of all, I mean, I don't think people need to rush out and spend hundreds on gear to get them through a blackout. Most people will have some very basic things at home that they can use. For example, for a long time, um, lots of companies were giving out USB power banks as a way to kind of, you know, as a marketing thing. But I have a ton of them at home. Um, and most people will have one or two lying around the house. They come in very handy. Now, obviously, it depends on the power bank that you have. If you don't have a good one, um, it won't give you, it, you might get maybe 25% of the battery charge because obviously, in the last few years batteries on all our devices have got bigger because we are doing more with all these devices so they need to have bigger batteries to keep them powered now yeah. a lot just, of the just just so people are clear a usb power bank it's it's a rechargeable battery so even in, in the event that the power goes down you can charge your device using this thing Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they're those kind of like the little sticks that you see everywhere. Um, if you've ever been to a festival, you have these. If you've ever been camping, you have these. Um, it, it's a good you know idea what? to keep they're all, Those things are all dead in a drawer somewhere. Well, this is the thing I was going to say. It's a good idea to kind of keep a check on them yeah. and to charge them every so often because some of them will hold their charge better than others. Obviously, the more expensive ones, you know, they, they'll they'll do a little bit better because you'll have more capacity on them. You, if they are sitting in a drawer, look, they are they are going to lose a bit of charge over time, like anything. But you know, if it's a kind of you get into a habit of checking them just to be sure, keep a few charge in hand in case the power goes out. Now, obviously, you know, you might have issues with mobile networks as well when um, power goes out. They obviously you would, you would think that. You know, they would have backup generators and all that stuff to, you know, to kind of keep the mobile networks running. But it can cause problems and it has caused problems in the past where there's been a power cut. And, you know, it might just be that your service goes out for a little while or you lose 4G signal or you lose 3G signal. Uh, but, you know, it, if you have these battery packs powered, at least, you know, you're prepared. You can't control, you know, what the networks are doing. You can only control what happens in your own house. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some, there are some very, like there's some reasonable ones that are good to buy. So, for example, I have a Juku one that costs about 70 euro. Um, and it's, you know, it's about 10,000 milliampere battery. So that will charge my phone reason more or less twice. Um, that costs about 70 euro. Otterbox do ones from between 40 and 50 euro that are about double that, uh, that capacity. But either way, for under 100 euro, you'll, you'll get something that will keep your, your batteries charged. Now, if you are a serious camper, as a few of my friends are, I am not. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I'd rather stay in a hotel <laughs> with a wall socket. So I am woefully underprepared for this, apart from having a million and one battery packs. Uh, there are um, kind of a heavy duty ones. There's an EcoFlow River Pro portable power station, which will cost you about 800 euro. But it's got a 720 watt hour battery on it, which is massive. And you could charge lots of stuff off that for several hours and you still wouldn't make a dent in it. Okay. Um, my personal favorite is the, it's the Power Travel Power, power Traveler Power Gorilla Bank Um which is about 24,000 milliampere. It costs about 250 euro, but it will charge lots of stuff, mm-hmm. um, including it, it kept my laptop, a very, very uh, undemanding laptop, but a laptop powered for a little while. Okay, so that's if, if you need something like that, you can invest in it. Otherwise, you can get much cheaper ones or search the drawer, which is what I'm going to do for the small one and, and keep it charged up. Kira O'Brien from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.